millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. You've heard us say it before. The 2020 presidential election was met with record voter turnout. Several states across the country made it easier for Americans to cast their vote amid the deadly coronavirus pandemic. The entire system of elections in the United States is for the most part set around the whole construct of having all the foxes guard the hen house. Because if all the foxes are guarding the hen house, then they're not going to let some other fox go grab those eggs. And so understand there's a context to elections that in most cases, in most places works very well. Because you've got strong partisans from both sides or multiple sides. Welcome to Dead Men Don't Vote. So we're here to ensure the right to vote will be preserved. The podcast where you, the American voter, have the opportunity to understand how elections really work and how you can help improve the process and restore confidence in American democracy. We will interview leading election experts, explore election controversies, and demystify election administration. From voter registration to ballot casting and counting, results reporting, and on through to certification and audits. We'll answer all your burning questions. Is vote by mail safe? How are foreign countries trying to interfere in our elections? And yes, do dead people actually vote? And we hope you will listen, like the future of our country depends on it. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic. My name is Royfield Brown. I'm sat in a gloriously sunny spring like Oakland. I am in California in the Bay Area. Today I'm sat with virtually Gary Gorstel, who is an American historian and academic. He's a Paul Mellon Professor of American History at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom. He's also a fellow of the Sydney Sussex College. Gary received his BA from Brown University in 1976, so in the the days of President Ford. He is one of the leading Americans in terms of looking at the history of race, citizenship and American nationhood. He's a historian of the 20th century, 
and specifically the United States position in the 20th century. And Gary is the author and co-author of some six books, including his latest, which is entitled The Rise and the Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Hello, Gary, and welcome to Mid-Atlantic. Thank you, Royfield. It's good to be here with you today. We're going to jump straight into this. I need you to explain to me and to the audience what exactly is neoliberalism uh, before we even talk about its rise. Neoliberalism is an ideology that wants to emancipate capitalism from its constraints. It preaches the virtues of free trade, free movement of capital, free movement of people. It endorses globalization, believing that globalization is going to raise all boats. It critiques those forces and institutions that at an earlier period of the 20th century sought to restrain capitalism. It emerged in the 1970s. I'm sure we'll get into the details of that later. This was a time when the system that was prevailing in the United States and many other parts of the world, some form of social democracy, some form of managed capitalism was no longer working as it was, was no longer delivering the goods. If the essence of that older system was to take a dynamic but chaotic and damaging economic system, that being capitalism, and subjecting it to public management for the public good. That was the essence of that earlier regime. That begins to fall apart, and this provides an opening for those who preach the virtues of free markets, unleashing capitalism's entrepreneurial energies, and r removing most of the constraints and the restraints that, in the view of the advocates of neoliberalism, had constrained capitalism for a long time. Those who believe in neoliberalism believe fervently in the virtues of a capitalist system, especially when it's unbound, and they are willing to weaken labor movements, the welfare state, tolerate high levels of inequality, because the ultimate goal of releasing capitalism's power is, in their eyes, ultimately going to raise all boats, both within countries and between countries. That is the ideology, that was the creed, that was the passion that powered the likes of Reagan and Thatcher, That's a who I start. see as neoliberals to power. Gary, first Gary, uh, guess all that is a perfect start for our first clip. The official residence of the Prime Minister of Great Britain, number 10 Downing Street. The glittering prize for the leaders of the country's political parties as Britain turns to the hustings. Prime Minister Callaghan pleads the Labour cause. Welfare, paternalism, bigger, better and bonnier socialism. Labour's campaign machinery swings into action. There's much reliance on Premier Callaghan's avuncular image. The workers are warned against a conservative takeover, led by the first woman Tory leader, Margaret Thatcher. Britons of votable age, basking for the first time in the glow of being wanted by everybody, Listen as the redoubtable daughter of a Grantham grocer outlines the Tories' plans for free enterprise, less taxation and a bit of firmness with the unions. And as the results come in, it was soon known that Britain had its first woman Prime Minister. Accepting defeat cheerfully, James Callaghan leaves the residence he has known for so short a time and drives to tender his resignation to Her Majesty the Queen at Buckingham Palace. Nobody questions her determination to do what she says. 
Next stop, the House of Commons. That's where Britain's first woman Prime Minister will really test her mettle. There's a real consensus before she comes into power in 1979, or at least there was a consensus up until the start of the 1970s, that the construct in terms of how the world is put together economically and geopolitically after the Second World War, that there was this consensus that governments can intervene, intervene economically into economies and prop up maybe failing economies as relatively full employment. We have record growth levels in the 1950s and the early 1960s in the United States. Europe gets back on its feet. What went wrong which is going to lead to this neoliberal world order? I think there were basic changes in the global economy going on in the 1960s and 70s. The United States from World War II was the only industrial nation that was really still intact because the other industrial nations had suffered devastating defeats. So it was on the one hand preeminent, on the other hand, it had to rebuild the industrial economies or help to rebuild the industrial economies of Britain, Western Europe, Germany, Japan, so that it would have trading partners and it would have healthy markets for all its goods. And by the 1960s and 70s, that project has been remarkably successful as epitomized by the stunning rise of Germany and Japan. We're now rebuilt and often with the best equipment, more efficiency than United States corporations. Suddenly, there was all kinds of competition for the United States that there had not been before. And at the same time, there's a reckoning going on uh, between the global north and the and the global south, which is related to one of the great movements after World War II, which, which is decolonization. World War II had destroyed European empires. It had damaged the American empire in the Philippines and elsewhere as well. And out of this moment of decolonization, there comes a rising sense of consciousness about the, the need to not simply become independent among the peoples of Asia and Africa, but to reset the terms of trade and reset the terms in which they engage with the global north, understanding that even after their independence, colonial relations economically often continued as they had before. And the st stunning case of this was oil and petroleum, much of it coming from the Middle East, much of the extraction, ref refining, price setting of oil being set by America and Britain and in the 60s and 70s, that situation becomes untenable in a series of conflicts and wars, Arab-Israeli wars, the rise of radical Islam, profoundly reshapes the availability of resources that were critical to the global north. This, and this becomes a moment of extraordinary redistribution of wealth from the global north to parts of the global south. And the combination of a world economic system that's changing both between the United States and its trading partners and a complete rethinking and redistribution of commodity production, extraction, and who gets the money for it through the existing arrangements of the West into a cocktail and everywhere in, in the West and the global North, what had been a remarkable period of growth begins to slow down, recession, inflation, and suddenly tools that have been so effective in the 1950s and 60s, strong governments able to manage these first world economies in the interests of all their people are no longer able to do it. And tremendous recession, tremendous poverty, tremendous shift in where the manufacturing centers of 
the world are tremendous changes in the price of petroleum and other commodities. So the world is being convulsed, and it is in this moment of convulsion uh, that a new set of ideas that have been percolating for some time on the margins, inconsequential for a long time, suddenly are able to be released from the margins and enter public debate and fuel new movements most strikingly with Thatcher in England, a uh, kind of revolution in the Tory party, and in the United States, the rise of a very different Republican party under the leadership of Ronald Reagan, who's normally called a conservative, but I think conservatism is not a very good word for describing the release of entrepreneurial capitalist energy that was at the core of, part of the core of Reagan's project. So Thatcher and Reagan are going to come out of this slowdown of Western economies. But where can we look where this economic theory comes from? Where were the intellectual think tanks, the kind of progenitors of this neoliberal world? Where did they come from and what did they say? Which is fundamentally the message which is going to be burnished and taken to Britain by Thatcher and then Reagan in the United States. The ideas begin in Europe in the interwar period between World War I and World War II and uh, Central Europe, especially Austria and Switzerland. And this is a period of time, of course, when the world is being whipshawed by collectivisms of the left and right, collectivisms of the left being associated with communism and the rise of the Soviet Union and collectivisms of the right uh, being associated with Nazism and fascism. And there is a sense among a number of economists, Friedrich Hayek was one, Ludwig von Mises was another. These are people who are going to become very prominent in the neoliberal movement. That an older liberalism to which they had once adhered had failed. And this was what they called laissez-faire liberalism, that you just let people truck barter and exchange as adam smith the 18th century scottish philosopher prophesized would just solve all of the world's problems this idea was associated with laissez-faire liberalism this was perceived to have failed in and become hardened and leading to serious inequalities and not producing affluence or, sec or security for enough people and this had opened the door to what these liberals regarded as tyrannies of the left and the right, tyranny of the left being communism, tyranny of the right being fascism. So they were desperate to find a new liberalism that carved a middle way between laissez-faire of the 19th century and the dreaded collectivism of the 20th century. And neoliberalism was meant to be that middle way it required much more activity on the part of the state in order to buttress capitalist markets. You just couldn't let them go on their own steam. They had to be managed in some way for the sake of them fulfilling their full potential. And neoliberals see themselves uh, in this way. And their goal is to make a world safe for capitalism. And this requires more activity and more intentionality and more activity on the part of the governments in order to achieve that goal. One of the problems that these neoliberals face, however, that is that they were not the only new liberalism on the block, so to speak. Neo is a fancy word for new. There was another new liberalism that also saw itself as a middle way between laissez-faire of the 19th century 
and the collect dreaded collectivism of the 20th century, and that was the liberalism of Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Democratic Party. And part of what they do in the 1930s, and this is the moment when the Democratic Party is rising with the New Deal, Roosevelt, the most successful Democratic president ever in American history, he also is saying that he has a new liberalism that offers a middle way between the collectivisms of the right and the laissez-faire, failed laissez-faire policies, I'm sorry, the collectivisms of the right and left and the failed laissez-faire policies of the 19th century. Only his new liberalism is really an American form of social democracy. It requires much deeper involvement on the part of government in economic affairs. It manages the economy. It It limits capitalist prerogatives. It establishes a welfare state. It grants workers rights they had not had before. So there are really two new liberalisms that emerge in the 1930s. And the dominant one is the new liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, and the Democratic Party. The neoliberals go off to Mount Pelerin, Switzerland, a mountain very isolated to try and gather themselves. And their campaign and ambition becomes to make their new liberalism, their neoliberalism, the liberalism that will succeed over the long term. And they want to shunt to the side the new liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt and the Democratic Party because they see that as just another form of collectivism. They are voices in the wilderness. They, they get some early converts. Reagan is a convert by the 1950s. Barry Goldwater is a convert in the early 1960s. But this, in the 50s and 60s, this is the period when the New Deal liberalism of the Democratic Party in America is riding high. It really is a form of American social democracy. And so the neoliberals have to wait in the wilderness really for 30 years before the crack-ups of the 60s and 70s give them an opportunity to bid for power, give them an opportunity to move their ideology from the margins to the center. It is only when the New Deal liberalism of Franklin Roosevelt and his legatees begins to falter in the 60s and 70s that these intellectuals who have been preaching their neoliberalism for 30 years really get a chance to shine and move from the periphery to the center. And how are they going to do that in the United States is through the election of, of Ronald Reagan. And he comes to power saying that what is going to give Americans is a shot, American economy is a shot in the arm. And Americans, a real kind of sense of pride after the debacle in Iran and the defeat in Vietnam. This is Ronald Reagan running for re-election, a historical re-election in 1984 where he wins uh, 49 of the 50 American states. You already are the oldest president in history. Some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all. Mr. Truitt and I, and I want you to know that also, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> it's a great moment. One thing which I'm, I'm really struck by with Thatcher and Reagan, even though they're very different characters, they both were charismatic. You know, 
to be able to sell this, at least in the short term, a very bitter economic pill, you had two characters that bestrode the politics of their country and also were charismatic. How important do you think neoliberalism, how important was it to sell Reaganomics, neoliberalism, neoliberalism or factorism in the UK? How important do you think it was that these two leaders were charismatic and bestrode the world in terms of the force of their characters? Well, I think, I think they were very important. The, there were, they were the product, these two individuals were the product of, of movements, of think tanks, of intellectuals, of, of donors. Uh, a lot of organization preceded them. Uh, a lot of plans have been hatched. But in, in democracies, at the end of the day, you have you're not going to be successful with your ideas unless you are successful electorally. And I know Reagan better than I know Thatcher. And he he was a brilliant politician. The clip you just played is a sign of his brilliance, uh, part of his brilliance, uh, completely disarming his opponent, <laughs> turning something that had been a liability into a great asset for him winning the crowd to his side. What a brilliant move. And what part of what's interesting to me about Reagan is that many of us, myself included, because I was alive at that time, underestimated him. He had a bad rap among a lot of liberals and a lot of Democrats, uh, a failed actor or actor of limited success. He, he was a fabulist. He made stories up. He sort of mixed up reality with the movies he had starred in or the movies he had watched. He had trouble remembering a book that he he had read the rap against him was long and quite critical. And in the course of writing this book in, in which Reagan plays a starring role, I had to rethink my own preconceptions of, of the man. And you don't have to like the man. And I was, I was then, and I'm now an opponent of his policies, but one has to respect his political ability, his political genius, and also his political seriousness. He was reading Friedrich Hayek on train rides in the 1950s when he was going from one General Electric plant to another to preach the virtues of free enterprise. You know, Hayek is not an easy man to to read. The, for him, the most, the greatest president was Franklin Roosevelt. And even though they were poles apart ideologically, he regarded Roosevelt as a great communicator and who had facilitated America's first rendezvous with destiny. Those are Roosevelt's words. And Reagan wanted to affect the second American rendezvous with destiny and wanted to be as great a communicator as Roosevelt had been. So studied him extremely closely and modeled his own rise and his own way of connecting to the public um, on what Roosevelt had accomplished 40 years earlier. So he was uh, a man of, of great political skill and and part of his storytelling was an attempt to, on the one hand, disguise the seriousness of his, his, his of his intent to, to eliminate every vestige of communism from the world. And on the other hand, a very clever attempt on his part to reach out to a lot of Americans who had become suspicious of capitalism, corporations, big industry, all things that Reagan supported. He wanted to unleash their power. And one of the questions for him was, how do I reach the ordinary American? How do I reach ordinary working class Americans? How do I win them to my side? And his humble tales and his storytelling was a big part of that, alongside his ability 
to evoke the founding moment of America, which is America's sacred moment. America doesn't have a king or a queen, but it has a foundational moment that people revere, the founding of the country, the separation from Britain in the 18th century, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the promise of freedom for every man. He was able to recover that promise and sell it to anew to the American people 175 years after this happened. And then there was one other element to his success story, and that was playing the race card in a very ugly way because the reaching out to Americans that I've been talking about, he was not reaching out to African-Americans. He was not reaching out to other racial minorities. He, he came after the civil rights revolution of the 1960s and 70s, and part of his message was, the civil rights revolution has gone too far, and I have to Gary, recover for the best Americans something I'm, of what they had before. I'm, I'm going to quickly jump in there, right? Because the traditional left of center narrative is that Reagan, you know, he, he peddled traditional conservative positions in terms of society. And his, re his response to the AIDS crisis was not great. However, he was pro-immigration and open borders. And it's really interesting when you listen to clips of the 1980 election, there is no way that a Republican politician could have been elected in 2020 saying the things that he was saying in terms of oh, relatively open borders and, not, and encouraging non-white immigration. So don't we need to temper when we say that, you know, he played the race card? We need to give that that wider picture as well. I agree with that. I think you're right that he was pro open borders. He also created during his presidency, created a path to citizenship for millions of undocumented Mexican immigrants in the United States, something that no Republican politician today would would even contemplate. Uh, part of the neoliberal dispensation was a series of freedoms, which included free movement of people across borders in pursuit of their self-interest. And he was adamant that that kind of freedom should be available in America. And so you're absolutely right that he was much more open to immigration than the Trump Republican Party of today is. On the other hand, we have to still reckon with his policies toward African-Americans. And I think there it's harder to find in my reading of the situation, it's harder to find the positives in that. And the era in which he was opening up free markets and preaching the virtues of free markets also became the era of mass incarceration in the United States in which more and more people were being sent to jail and disproportionately minority, especially African-American there was a way in which part of his message of freedom was to suggest there are certain groups who are not ready for freedom. And if they have to be removed from the ordinary processes of economic exchange of work for the sake of the success of a market economy, then that is something the United States has to do. And so one has to deal with the paradox of in this neoliberal age of opening up and accentuating the free market that, whole populations were being removed from the opportunity to work, to buy, to purchase, to move freely. So that has to be part of the accounting of this neoliberal age. And it is one of the paradoxical elements that is sometimes hard to get your head around because mass incarceration moves in such a different direction from free enterprise 
and freeing up markets. But both were going on in the 1980s, and I think Reagan facilitated that kind of discourse and led to what was a dark era, I think, for race relations in the United States. But don't we also need to acknowledge the fact that though he might, we you look at the levels of mass incarceration, whether it's white or black or Latino Americans, it ticks up under Nixon a little, and then it ticks up again under Reagan. But it's actually the president who's the triangulator. It's Clinton in his presidency where we have the the true birth of the prison industrial complex. My fellow Americans. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Perkins. On this day, with high hopes and brave hearts, in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. This election is a clarion call for our country to face the challenges of the end of the Cold War and the beginning of the next century. To restore growth to our country and opportunity to our people. To empower our own people so that they can take more responsibility for their own lives. To face problems too long ignored, from AIDS to the environment, to the conversion of our economy from a defense to a domestic economic giant. Explain why Clinton is similar to Eisenhower. The core idea for the book is that of political order. And by what I mean by political order is an era in which the ideas of one party become so dominant that the opposition party, if it wants to have any hope of coming back into power, has to acquiesce to the central principles of the dominant party ideologically. So if, if I take you back for a moment to the 1950s, Eisenhower is the first Republican president in 20 years. 
the previous one had been Herbert Hoover, who leaves office in early 1933. And then you had Roosevelt winning four terms, Harry Truman finishing out his fourth term, winning another term. So five terms of Democratic presidents, which is in, in the United States and, and also in Britain, that's 20 years in the wilderness for a political party is an eternity. And what's so interesting about Eisenhower to me is that when the Republicans finally succeed in putting one of their people back in the White House, winning the presidency after the 20 years in the wilderness, he does so by acquiescing to the core principles of the New Deal and and the liberalism of the Democratic Party and of Roosevelt. He accepts the power of organized labor. He accepts the welfare state. He accepts Social Security. He talks about improvements in the standard of living. He talks about narrowing the gap between the rich and the poor. The he And then he endorses and signs... A comprehensive tax reform that makes the unbelievably high tax rates of World War II permanent in American life. And these rates are so high, they sound positively un-American. The rate that he signed onto for the highest income earners in the 1950s was over 90%. Over 90%. A Republican president signs that legislation into law and defends the rightness of that system. So here's an example of Eisenhower acquiescing to the ideology and political principles, core political principles of the new deal, because he thought he saw that was the only future for the Republican party. Fast forward to the 1990s, the Democrats have been doing almost as poorly as the Republicans have been doing in that earlier era. The last Democratic president to win election was Jimmy Carter in 1976. A Republican wins in 1984, 1988. Republicans had won. Nixon had won in 1968 and 72. It's a similar period in the wilderness. Clinton, a brilliant politician in his own right, is trying to figure out how to bring the Democratic party back to power and he sees the only route to power is to acquiesce to some of the core neoliberal principles of the republican party free markets he signs on to nafta internationally he 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 signs on to the world trade organization he deregulates everything in sight the new telecommunications industry he signs a bill that uh, gives the government no real no real oversight about the it giants that are going to start dominating the landscape he removes a core principle of the New Deal, the regulation of Wall Street, the so-called Glass-Steagall Act, which had brought stability to Wall Street and ended the cycle of boom and bust capitalist speculation. He declares that the era of big government is over. This is a Democrat declaring, not Reagan, declaring that the era of big government is over. He, he reforms welfare policy to make it much tougher on the poor than it had been, which was also something out of Reagan's playbook. And so in one area after another, you see him act enacting Reagan-style Republican policies that I label neoliberalism. And so I see his role as being similar to the role of Eisenhower in the 1950s. If you want to lead your party out of the political wilderness, if you want to restore them to power, you have to accept the dominant ideological views and policies of your 
opposition party. And so Clinton wins two elections, a great electoral success for the Democratic Party. But he does it, I would say, on Republican terms. Hence, I call him the Democratic Eisenhower. And I think it's uh, an apt title to give him. So in the 1990s, we have a unipolar world because the Soviet Union has collapsed. It separates into the Commonwealth of Independent States. And then those independent states all go their own way. How does this seeming victory over the ideological foe of capitalism, how does that affect neoliberalism and neoliberalism in terms of uh, its foreign policy? We now have a unipolar world. Well, I think the collapse of communism allows neoliberalism to triumph both in the, in the United States and globally. The It's been 30 years now, more than 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And until this recent war with Ukraine, which is now compelling us to revisit those moments and look at them seriously again, Americans have largely forgotten how deeply the threat of communism structured the existence of American society and the political beliefs of Americans from the moment communism erupted in the Russian Revolution in 1917 until the moment when the Soviet Union fell in 1991. Communism was capitalism's fundamental foe. It opposed everything that capitalism held, held dear. It wanted to eliminate markets. It wanted to eliminate private capital. It wanted to substitute the state and planning for free enterprise and markets. It privileged the working class over individuals that would not tolerate the accumulation of huge amounts of private wealth. American capitalists regarded communism as a moral threat, and the two movements shaped the 20th century more than any other two forces. Communism was also regarded as a threat because if they were to triumph, it was thought that they would never be removed because they were so tyrannical and so ruthless in their methods and so skillful with their ideology that they succeeded either to uh, mislead people or to scare them, and that once a communist regime triumphed, there was no, there would no, there would be no chance of capitalism ever, ever restoring itself. And th because th the triumph of communism was thought to be final, and there would be no second chance, it had to be contained and rolled back wherever it appeared. And more than that, domestically. I think elites in American society were willing to compromise with the working class, with the labor movement, because they feared that if they didn't compromise on their own terms, they might face a communist threat and a much worse outcome for themselves and their enterprises. And so the period when communism is small is the period is strong is the period when labor is strongest. It's a period when, when the welfare state is strongest. It's the period characterized by, compromise between elites and ordinary Americans over the distribution of wealth. It's also the most egalitarian time in American life where the gap between rich and poor is relatively modest and where there's an, an opportunity and an avenue to a broad middle class for a lot of poor people in American society. What happens after communism falls? America no longer has this foe. Capitalists no longer have what they had so deeply feared. They're much less willing to compromise with their opponents, uh, with their antagonists. And this is true both domestically and internationally. And so labor declines, the welfare state declines in America, 
the gap between uh, rich and poor, why, and America feels it, it can impose its will and its way on the entire world. It is a unipolar world. America has the only strong military in the 1990s. It feels that its ideology has triumphed. It, has, it no longer has a foe. It can do what it wants. And this leads to an extraordinary period of hubris, which is going to, in my view, collapse catastrophically in the Iraq War of 2003. What facilitates this, of course, is communism's collapse and America's triumphalism. It unleashes capitalism's power and removes the need for America to compromise both domestically and internationally in ways it had done before. Thank you, Gary. I'm going to pivot, but before I pivot, it's a, it's a great opportunity for me to say this is a recording of the podcast, Mid-Atlantic. Mid-Atlantic has been, been run for some eight years by me, where I get together with great thinkers. Sometimes they're actually my friends, and sometimes they're Cambridge professors, as we have here now. And we look at US and UK politics, and the whole point of the show really is to compare and contrast what can we learn from, from each, each country, how it goes about uh, running its society, and sometimes why are they different? So what, I, what I'd like to implore you to do if you're in the audience, click on the little greenhouse, which means that you'll be alerted whenever we go live with these rooms. Obviously, we have 9-11, and we're going to have the invasion of uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And as you said, this is American hubris. This is maybe the high point of the unipolar world. But one of the things I found fascinating about your book, Gary, was that you talked about another aspect where America, America has dominance, and that is in, in, in the Internet. And we have large American uh, companies which are going to come out of this new media. And you said that whether it's the left or the right, both of them actually gave both of this uh, neoliberal world. So let's go to a key moment in 2007. I just push here and I see Johnny Ives' contacts with all his information, his three phone numbers, his email, whatever else, his address, whatever else I've got, it's all in one place. And if I want to call Johnny, all I do is push his phone number. I'll call his mobile number right now. And now we are calling Johnny here. <clears throat> I could turn on a speakerphone like this if I wanted to. Hello, Steve. Hey, Johnny, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Well, it's been two and a half years, and I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to make the first public phone call with iPhone. <laughs> I, I remember when we first started working on this, and it's just, it's just unbelievable. Whoa, whoa, what is this? I've got another call coming in. Johnny, can I put you on hold for a minute? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I put Johnny on hold, and hi, Phil. Tell us how the birth of the Internet and social media and America's dominance of these big brands, whether it's Amazon or Google, have affected and helped shape the neoliberal world order. I love your clips, by the way. I wish my, I wish uh, my chapters could open with uh, one of these clips. Maybe in a book of the future, which will be all online anyway, we'll be we'll be able to do that. Gary, so, Gary. this uh, is it's super simple. Come talk to me when you're doing the audio book. I'm very cheap. You, you'll hear from me tomorrow. The IT revolution is is a point of technological transformation as as fundamental and as basic as the invention of the printing press five, six hundred years before. I mean, it's something that happens 
twice a millennium and it's happened in our time. And I don't need to tell your audience or the way which in way in which you're talking today in this clubhouse of the way in which social media has has revolutionized our lives. And I am most interested in the moment when America commits to setting up the infrastructure in which they in which this revolution can unfold. And it is, of course, it it begins in the 70s. It accelerates a little bit in the 80s. The 90s, I would say, is the moment of takeoff. And what really interests me is the utopianism of this moment and this and the way in which we imagined that this new technology was going to connect us to everyone, enhance our possibilities for freedom and enhance our abilities to do so many things that have been denied us. It was a promise of extraordinary freedom, emancipation, and deliverance. And I think this has the effect of giving a tremendous sense of mission and belief, almost religious intensity, to neoliberalism because the the promise of IT gets bound up with the promise of the neoliberal moment. And if you just allow, if you just carry this revolution to its completion, if you just allow Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel to do what they were doing, a new world would take shape. And it would be a world of freedom and fulfillment. That was the promise of the 1990s. And, and of course, these companies promised great growth and they have delivered on that. I became very interested in, in the politics of, of, of this moment. How does one enhance this technology and how does one get the most out of this revolutionary moment? And because this was a neoliberal moment, the belief was you had to remove all public regulation of this extraordinary technology. You just had to let the hackers do what they were going to do, and you had to let them connect with the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley who they were going to connect to, and you you just had to let it go, and you had to let the geniuses and the money people get together, and the result would be just an extraordinary transformation. And what got lost in that moment is the sense that this new technology did not should not perhaps belong to private individuals. Our our knowledge platform, our information platform, should not be controlled perhaps by Google. Three hundred million Americans use that platform, largely unregulated or depending on Google's ability to regulate itself. The history of media in America prior to that time, especially in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, when there was an, an earlier period of technological change, there was a sense that the uh, airwaves were public property, that the telephone lines were public property, and that these media companies had to be put under a kind of public supervision and made to serve a public purpose. And when this second period of revolution comes in the 1990s, because neoliberalism is so strong, because the state is thought to be ineffective and mostly simply an obstacle to progress, the sense of the new technology being developed being a public good that the American people somehow had control of in some way, or that th these private companies were obligated to serve a public purpose, 
that politics disappears from this moment and the legislation that passes in the 1990s empowers these tech companies really to do just about anything they wanted to do. And part of what they want to do is not just new ways for Americans to connect. They want to make a lot of money. They want to consolidate. They want to ensure their profitability. They want to control as much as they can. And so this moment of great possibilities also becomes a moment of new enterprises becoming larger and larger, more and more consolidated, more and more powerful. The one thing, before we move on to fundamentally the denouement of uh, neoliberalism, as you define it, because we have a lot of people on stage that want to ask questions, so I really want, do want to get to them. It is fair to say that there was a lot of utopianism around the, this new platform, the internet, and the power that it could actually give us in terms of us being citizens. And social media in particular does help the spread of the Arab Spring. Around about the early 2010s, there is still this kind of utopian promise of, of this new platform. But what it does lead to is manipulation from, from state actors in the elections of, of liberal democracies. And the power of social media means that there can be disinformation. And one of the first significant outcomes of that was this incident in 2016. Breaking news out of London that could have serious economic and political reverberations for the rest of us. The cliffhanger vote on whether Britain will stay in the European Union. ABC's Lama Hassan now with the latest on what they're calling Brexit. The official results are in. The people of Britain have spoken, voting for a British exit, dubbed Brexit, with almost 52% of the votes choosing to leave the 28-member European Union. Immigration was at the forefront of the Leave campaign for Britain to take control of its borders and its economy, national identity and culture. Make no mistake. This referendum is huge. This result to leave is monumentous, a political earthquake with the financial ramifications uncertain. The pound falling sharply, plummeting against the dollar, which of course will impact Wall Street and global markets when they open. The Leave campaign hailing June 23rd as Britain's Independence Day. And to to really underline this illiberal shift in terms of the pre-world order, we have the election in the United States of a one Donald J. Trump. We need somebody that can take the brand of the United States and make it great again. It's not great again. We need... We need somebody, we need somebody that literally will take this country and make it great again. We can do that. And I will tell you, I love my life. I have a wonderful family. They're saying, Dad, you're going to do something that's going to be so tough. You know, all of my life I've heard that a truly successful person, a really, really successful person, and even modestly successful, cannot run for public office. Just can't happen. And yet that's the kind of mindset that you need to make this country great again. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am officially running for President of the United States, and we are going to make 
our country great again. I'm going to just about end here. There is more of the story to come. We still have have to have the retreat from Kabul, which is the end of American adventurism, and then uh, maybe the end of the liberal, the, the neoliberal world order completely can be bookended with the invasion of, of Ukraine. But I think here is maybe a, a good place for us to end because what the 2010s has actually seen is Modi, the rise of Modi in, in, in India, Orban in Hungary, Duda in Poland. And to a lesser degree, we, we have a populist figure in the United Kingdom, Johnson as a reaction to, to Brexit. And whether you're a Trump supporter or not, the Trump presidency definitely can be fitted into that kind of wellspring. Here is an American president who was saying things which were profoundly illiberal. Gary, before we throw this out to questions uh, for people on the stage, would you say that the 2010s is the logical outcome of neoliberalism in terms of these populist politicians who aren't encumbered by, let's say, traditional modes of talking or of thinking Yes, I would. And I think the critical event is the great recession, the great global recession of 2008, 2009, that explodes the illusions of neoliberalism that have been very powerful. The illusion was that if you open the entire world to capitalism, all boats will be lifted, inequality will be contained, everybody will benefit. And I think in the wake of the that shattering event, the gap between rich and poor, both within nations and also between different sectors of the world, becomes so pronounced that they can no longer be denied. And this is the moment when the populist politicians about whom you were speaking, referring to and, and listing, this becomes their moment because they put themselves at the head of the forgotten People, the those people excluded from the benefits of globalization, those shunted to the margins, the kind of people that uh, voted for Trump in overwhelming numbers, the kind of people that voted for Brexit in overwhelming numbers, a revolt against a globalized liberal world that was thought as bringing too few benefits to too many people. I, the, the one name I want to add into the mix, because it's a very important name, is that of Bernie Sanders in the United States. So it's not just a populism of the right that erupts. There's also a populism of the left. And I spent a lot of time in the penultimate chapter in the book on Trump and Sanders, two people who were utterly irrelevant to American politics during the neoliberal heyday of the 1990s and the 2010s. They become the most two, the two most dynamic players in American politics to which everyone else must respond. And I have much more to say there, but let me stop because I'd love to hear some questions. Fantastic. We do have a lot of people uh, on stage. One very last question. Be succinct, be pithy, dare I say short with your answer, Gary. What comes next after the fall of the neoliberal world order? Well, one possibility is 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 a new political, a progressive political order that embodies social democratic ideals. Another possibility is that the authoritarian leaders you mentioned become the drivers of the world and they establish authoritarian political orders. And we also are in danger of living in a 
a period of extended dysfunction and disorder before the shape of a new world order really becomes clear. I can't say more than that, except to say we are in right now a moment of profound transition to something else. I can tell you what I wish for, but your listeners are not interested in what I wish for. You're interested in (laughs) in what's going to be. I can tell you we are passing out of the neoliberal order to a new world order, but we are in the throes of the transition whether we will go in a left direction or a right direction or live in an extended period of dysfunction and disorder at this moment, it's impossible to say. Thank you for that answer right now. So we have 134 people in the room, which is utterly fantastic for Mid-Atlantic. So I'd like to thank everybody for coming here and making this room so popular and so vibrant. We have a lot of people on stage. All right, Dr. Dan, over to you, sir. Make sure it's pithy and short, though. Thank you uh, very much, Roy Feld. And thanks, Professor Gary. Great comments and insight. My question to you. So where do we go? Are we going towards the, the, the new order? Is that authoritarianism? And is that an impact of misinformation, disinformation? Thank you. The dominant uh, feature of the world has been the move toward authoritarianism. The last 10 years, all the authoritarian leaders that Royfield mentioned, they recognize themselves in each other. They, they feed off each other. They're, they share in the elation of each other's victory. They share a sense, too, that democracies are on the defense of liberal democracies, that they can't solve problems, that they're weak and indecisive. And what the world needs is a series of strong men who are going to take things in hand and solve the problems that these democracies couldn't do. I would say until recently that the authoritarians had somewhat the upper hand, especially via Trump until Trump's defeat in 2020. But Trump's defeat in 2020 in the United States was a very, very important moment. And now I think the frustration of Putin in Ukraine also is is a strike against authoritarianism. So what had been so strong, and whereas I might have been willing to predict authoritarianism would triumph, I think that they have suffered a couple major losses. And you can feel the world recalibrating and people in the world recalibrating and rethinking which gives me hope that the liberal democracy is not finished as a force in the world. All right, let's go to Ryan White. Oh, yeah, thanks. My question will be quick. Possible changes um, heading towards, you know, the possibility of authoritarianism or progressive. Are there any events or indicators that, that are upcoming that you're looking at as to what might be a signal as to which direction it is heading? That's a that's a great question. I think the Democratic Party is going to have to survive its opponent, the Republican Party in the United States. It's, it's going to have to keep until the Republican Party gives up its own authoritarian instincts. Uh, it's going to have to keep for democracy to really flourish. The Democratic Party is going to have to keep Republicans at some distance from power. You know, a return to Trump of, of Trump to power in 2024. I think would be disastrous. So I'm looking closely at that. I've been following Biden's presidency very closely. I I think he got off to a great start and then ran into a whole set of difficulties, some of his own making, some not. So I'm watching that his presidency very closely. And then I think the part that you missed was Ukraine is, is, is crucial now. And one can see how Ukraine either becomes a, a triumph for authoritarianism in terms of a Russian victory or a serious reversal for authoritarianism. So I think Ukraine also there is very close watch now in terms of getting a better sense of, of the direction in which we're going. Nina Gregory. 
Hi, thank you so much for this really fascinating conversation. I wanted to ask a follow up to something you said. You you had given two scenarios, one which you felt maybe was Pollyanna-ish for this group. I <laughs> I wanted to know what that was, if you wouldn't mind sharing it with us. Clearly, there are quite a lot of questions about where we're going, so I'm going to have to think harder about this, and I will probably I'll do some journalistic writing about it. <laughs> and put it out on Twitter. If I think the rise of Bernie Sanders has been amazing. And I think there's uh, the rebirth of a democratic left in the United States that has been involved in democratic party politics with a seriousness with which it has not been involved for a long time. I think Biden read the 2020 moment very well. He carried out a very good campaign. And I think the victory of the Democratic Party and Biden in 2020 was a tremendous assertion of, of democracy and indicates how many Americans still care very deeply about their democracy and want to see democracy carry on into the future. And you combine that with some of what Bernie Sanders has been able to do. And, and that gives me a hope that a, a new political order that is progressive and social democratic with an emphasis on both society and democracy has a future. And it's not out of the question that in five or 10 years, when the craziness of this moment begins to clear and things begin to settle down, that we might imagine ourselves to be in a better place in a better place than we have been, have been able to imagine. Andrea, you're up next. I was wondering if in your in your rethinking of what might come next in the global political economic order, whether you have or you could comment on the influence of the rise of the billionaire class. Well, the part of what the neoliberal age produced was an era of unregulated capitalism that has allowed for the accumulation of just extraordinary fortunes, uh, fortunes of a magnitude that were barely imaginable 50 or 60 years ago, but it's not unprecedented in American history. We, in the 19th century, we had a similar run-up, similar technological breakthroughs leading to a tremendous concentration of wealth and power at, at the top of the social pyramid. And at that moment in American history in the late 19th century, there was a revulsion against monopoly power, against corporate power, and a determination on the part of many people to reclaim the republic, a lot of reform of political law, of contributions, of money in politics. And it was a long struggle, but it was ultimately a successful struggle that led to the New Deal. And that gives me confidence that it is possible for people living in a democracy to say that certain inequalities in wealth and power are not acceptable in, in, in a democracy, that a certain amount of redistribution has to go on. I wrote a piece for the New York Review of Books online a few weeks ago about the America's taxation policy over its history, willingness to tax extraordinary fortune, fortunes at, at a high rate because of the conviction that so much economic power concentrated at the top of the social pyramid can't possibly work in, in a democratic nation. Mark, you've been waiting patiently. You're up next, sir. Yes, I'll go first. Thank you for a wonderful room. And given Adam Tu's recommendation and 2017 paper with a similar name, but with a question mark after the rise and the fall of neoliberal, I already know it's a great book. <laughs> and my question is about adaptation ability of neoliberalism. Hayek famously supported some form of government-assisted healthcare driven by post-World War II concerns. Neoliberals have 
claim for the GFC, Global Financial Crisis Response, whatever we think of that. Most importantly, probably COVID response and the Federal Reserve independently, independence itself being a neoliberal product, adopting post-Keynesian policy. Biden moving to a more direct state investment, avoiding public-private partnerships. For all of those things, neoliberals in some way or the other have claimed some credit. And the other, I guess, new thing would be stakeholder capitalism and adoption by businesses, some form of responsibilities that usually would be assumed by a welfare state. So is my question is, is stakeholder capitalism a rebranding of neoliberalism? And What's the chances of those? Uh, great question. I'm trying to think about how I can answer this briefly. There, there's to say that neoliberalism is ending doesn't mean I don't mean to suggest that capitalism is ending. You can have neoliberal forms of capitalism. You can have other forms of capitalism. And I think we have to keep that in mind. And there, there, it, there is no doubt that there are forces in society that want to rehabilitate neoliberalism, that want to adapt it, that want to see it resurge. And there are some people who think think and who argue with me that neoliberalism in the end will triumph and that this resistance to neoliberalism is temporary and passing. I think it's that's too simplistic uh, reading of the current situation. If you take just one example, the Federal Reserve, for example, it used to be that the Federal Reserve was seen as an instrument of neoliberalism, of the financialization of the economy, more and more power being concentrated in the Federal Reserve, uh, the American people having no control over what the Federal Reserve does because they're appointed by presidents and they're responsible really to, to no one. And so they're free to enact the will of elites. Well, we saw during the COVID crisis that the Federal Reserve changed and it began, it, it took on a responsibility not just for preserving elites or or banks or liquidity it also assumed the responsibility of of making sure that relief flowed not just to the rich but to the poor in this moment of crisis and you see people on the left now beginning to talk as though perhaps the federal reserve can be turned into a people's bank so that it doesn't simply serve elites but can be made responsive to the will of the people, it can become democratized in a way, the democratization of finance. I think people who see neoliberalism everywhere are sometimes um, too quick to see wherever there's financialization, this is the work of elites. But what we've seen in the past couple of years is, is perhaps the democratization of finance at the highest levels, which would indicate, again, that we're moving into something of a different world. Uh, so it's a fluid moment with a lot of experimentation going on, which I take to be the thrust of your question. And I think we have to pay attention to the experimentation to see, and then to see which ones emerge as successful and part of a new political order. Miran, you're up next. Thank you. I think uh, Black Monday, the crash of 1987, was a great moment in history. Not many people discuss it. The Cold War was also a struggle of ideologies. And Marxism had promised the Soviet bloc that they have a better system and the capitalism will crash. And what happened in 1987, a lot of markets all around the world crashed 30, 40% and nothing happened. And this led to the collapse of Soviet Union. We saw that coming right after that. And not many people talk about that day. What do you think about it? 
I remember the crash of 1987 because I didn't. I had only one stock, and it was Disney stock, and it lost two thirds of its value in a single day. It's my first experience with the market crashing. I, I think that has been the 87 crash has been has been understudied, and but I don't think that the 87 crash itself led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think we would want to separate the two. The collapse of the Soviet Union was 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 due to other forces that were going on at the time. The I think the you point to something important, the degree to which the lessons of nineteen eighty seven were not really heeded led to part of the exuberance around Wall Street and deregulation that took over American finance in the nineteen nineties and the first decade of the twenty first century. In other words, you're right in saying there are lessons to be learned from the 1987 crash. They were not learned. They were, in a sense, covered up. There was a government bailout. And so rather than being a warning against excessive deregulation of finance, it was largely ignored and, and bypassed. And we might consider that today when we revisit it, a missed opportunity for being more measured about the deregulation that carried everything before it in the 1990s. I must admit, Moran, I think that's an excellent point. And yes, I think we all always do gloss over that big crash of, of 1987. So, so thank you for, for jogging our memories. In, in my chronological sweep, going through Gary's book for my research, I didn't even put that as a marker. So gold star to you for bringing that up. Right. So I'm presuming that everybody who's left on stage wants to speak. Paul C, you're up next. Super brief, though. And Gary, be, be brief with your answer, too. Paul C. Thank you. I'm from China. I have to, I have a question to ask and a, a brief point to make. So, you know, since the, the, the Ukraine war broke out, Professor John Mearsheimer's lecture and viewpoints has been widespread and disseminated in the Chinese intellectual community. And I, I watched his lectures talking about the, the liberal traps and the, the rules of liberalism and the differences between various liberalisms. So I think uh, his viewpoints has uh, haunted and captured many hearts in China. Uh, and he's been talking about his position where he has been sidelined in the Washington, D.C., the, the geopolitical decision-making circle. So I I, I, want to, I was wondering why is that? Why is voices from John Mearsheimer and Harry Kiss signed for, for, for a very long time? Well, the, it's, you know, it's a great question. I also should say I, I'm very intrigued by at the moment when the Soviet Union dismantled itself because reform, they couldn't control it. China chose a different strategy. So the comparison between China and the Soviet Union, what they're doing in 1989 and thereafter is very interesting. And it's a... It's a part of the book that 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 people might want to look up. I think the best answer I can give, since there's very little time, is to is to say, is to return to my idea of a political order. And part of what a political order does is that it, it in a way, it orders people people's thoughts. It it sort of makes certain ways of thinking mainstream, and marginalizes certain criticisms and certain critiques. And Paul is right that Mearsheimer's realism has been sidelined for a long time. It's come back in a big way now, just in the in over Ukraine, and he's much more in discussion than he has been for a long time. But there's a way in which the triumph of neoliberalism made the kind of realism of Mearsheimer impossible to assimilate into American foreign policy. So I would refer Paul to my concept of political order and the way in which 
when a political order is riding strong, like the neoliberal order, it privileges certain ideas over other ideas, and other ideas may be very good and strong, but they cannot get a, a hearing. They are marginal on the sidelines and not accessible as part of public debate. Brilliant answer. Right, Elisa, you're up next. My comment's brief. It is uh, Madeleine Albright made a comment in the recent foreign policy essay where she said prior to the invasion into Russia's invasion into Ukraine, she said that China and Russia have squandered their best chance to offer appealing alternative to liberal democracy. So in the hopeful note, are we in the vein of where things are going? Is it possible that we're headed toward China with the Alibabas of the world, a better version of our capitalist system? Well, another 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 great question. I I I don't think either Russia or China are finished, and I don't know where Russia goes from 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 here. But China is a country of such power um, and influence now. It's it's going to whatever world order emerges from this moment, China is going to have a major role in it. And I think one of the questions coming out of Ukraine is 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 how this will affect China's decision-making about what role it wants to play in, in a world order. I, I wouldn't presume to know how the Chinese people are feeling or what they're learning about this current crisis and how it's, it's being assimilated into, into their view of the world. So I would say I would like to think Madeleine Albright is right, but I think it's premature to to suggest that they ha- that 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 path is finished. If she's referring to the communist path, I think yes, the communist path is finished. But of course, Russia is not communist anymore, and China is not either. There is an authoritarian capitalism that is very much a part of the world today, and I think to suggest that it has no future is 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 premature and and overly optimistic just on the the question of authoritarian capitalism south korea went from zero to a first world economy with an authoritarian set of leaders ditto singapore lee kuan yu was in power for some 31 years surely that is the potential alternative model isn't it that you have a strong person with a strong man, strong woman at the helm of the state. Fundamentally, it is totally illiberal, but it is, it is capitalism and they would call it benevolent capitalism. Yes. I mean, that, that clearly is, is, is one of the futures facing the world. And we haven't talked about climate at all, but the climate crisis is with us. Antarctica, Antarctica temperatures are Fahrenheit 70 degrees higher than they're supposed to be right now, just to give us a reality check there. And one of the questions I have, is it possible for democracies to handle the climate crisis if the leaders of those democracies have to ask their people to live with less? Hmm. And the period in which democracies have thrived in the 20th century were a period of more, where people could be confident that voting for this party or that party would be to improve the circumstances of their lives. Is it possible for a democracies to handle the climate crisis that is engulfing us? I'm not sure of the answer to that question. I would like to think the answer is yes, but there's an argument to be made that, that the climate crisis will al- also break in the direction of authoritarian regimes. I think because that's a- they. They don't have the same responsibility to their people that democracies do. 
I think it's a really interesting point that we're, we're, we're moving into a paradigm whereby in the West, we're going to have to get used to our, our economies not growing and uh, not necessarily in the same way that Japan hasn't with the kind of stagflation, but we're going to be comfortable without, without growth as long as there is some more equitable distribution of wealth. What does that say about aspiration? What does that say about entrepreneurialism fundamentally? If we are going to have to live within less resources and make those renewable resources actually more, more efficient and, and can we forego uh, the notion of growth, which has been one of the key indicators for the, since the 1930s, how we measured the vibrancy and the effectiveness of any economy by year in, year out growth. Professor Gary Gerstle, maybe what we'll have to do is get you back again soon, sir, to really to talk about the future, because I think it's utterly fascinating as to what form the future is going to take. What are we even going to call the next 40 years uh, of human development and national, international, sorry, uh, development in terms of the great tectonic forces that are sweeping over it, whether autocracy is going to win, whether a more caring level of capitalism is going to win, whether paternalism is the way forward or some radical decentralized form of freedom is, go is going to win out. I think these are all fascinating questions. And But I'd like to thank the 500 near plus people who've come into this room for coming into this room and making this uh, one, of, one of the biggest mid-Atlantic rooms which we've actually done. But dare I say, uh, Professor Gary, your box office, look at you, sir. Look at all these people that you've brought in. I'm still getting used to Clubhouse, but I'm delighted that there's interest in the topic. Thank you, Royfield, for making this possible and giving me an opportunity to speak. And Just before you go, tell us the name of your book again and where people can get it. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World During the Free Market Era. Thank you again uh, for joining us, and we'll have to get you on again soon. Really what I'm trying to foster here is um, a dialogue, a meaningful dialogue where we have people who are great thinkers on topics which concern all of us and and we and we'll be able to to discuss them in a way which is which is respectful even though we don't necessarily disagree with them I, i'm always incredibly honest my politics are avowedly left of center but i don't at all demonize my right leaning brothers and sisters i just try and listen to their arguments and try and win them over with the strength of mind or sometimes even be persuaded by them i believe the civic space the commons is something which um, is incredibly important for us to be able to appreciate our difference but still to be able to talk about them and to come up with with solutions which are which are seen as being best for all and 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 for that reason that reason only i call myself a moderate radical lefty and i'm i'm all of those things but I believe in dialogue, and that's what the Mid-Atlantic Club tries to foster. So, good listener, uh, you're listening to the podcast, and you've heard, oh, I think, one of our best shows with Professor Gary Gerstel. What you can do is download the Clubhouse app. That will then will allow you to be in the audience when these rooms go live, so you can actually be part of the podcast recording and ask a question to one of our guests. Don't, remember, don't forget, folks, left of centre politics is right-thinking politics, but don't demonise people who think... Uh, country thoughts than you engage with them and try and win them over the strength of your argument our hearts our minds our monies and our impassioned pleas to our politicians go out to help the proud independent nation of ukraine as they suffer the the indignity 
of an unforced, brutal attack by an oppressive regime. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.